This is Software Defined Survival, where we talk to AVIT professionals and software developers to find out how to leverage software to reinvent ourselves and the way we do business. We listen to their stories and ask for advice and tactics on how to survive and thrive in a software-defined world. Today on Software Defined Survival. You know, there's a path of least resistance if we adopt you know, accepted and known standards, um, the possibilities start to really open up to us. AV guys traditionally like to think they know how networks work, um, and it's not until you start to get into it with these these network specialists that you're just like, there is so much more to these networks than, than what meets the eye. Um, we're sitting in a lot more discussions that traditionally AV was just, just closed to. We'd sort of come in and, you know, ask for a port and then beg for mercy when something went wrong. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Software Defined Survival. My name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest began his career in broadcast and theater, working for Sky Australia and several theater companies, as well as his own video production and software company. He's worked as an AV engineer for AMX Australia and is currently revamping the way AV is done at Deakin University in Melbourne. Please welcome to the show, Jeremy West. Jeremy, welcome. G'day, Patrick. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on. Um, Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, you've uh, certainly done your research there. It's, uh, It's spot on. Absolutely. Nice. Um, the big secret to that one is LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> As it always is. It's, a, it's about a 10-minute peruse through your LinkedIn profile. And, uh, and then it's, it actually gives a great overview of uh, you know, your, your path. So getting back to that, you know, what has been your path? How did you really get started in, in AV? Um, I started, uh, as you said, in, in broadcast and live entertainment, so predominantly uh, working in, in the lighting field as a lighting technician uh, and lighting operator. Um, back in those days, we were using sort of the Strand 300, 500 series console um, and, and obviously DMX 512, which is still a, a thing. Um, and uh, just curiosity sort of started to creep in. I heard you could sort of you know hijack the console and start to run other things in there, which I experimented with. Um, and from there, that kind of just spiraled into, uh, I guess, the control field, um, which led me into more of the commercial AV side, the installation programming and, and those kind of things. Um, wound my way into a few programming courses and, and before I knew it, I was programming AMX systems and the like uh, in the commercial AV field. So it was, it was a relatively smooth transition for me, um, but um, certainly really strong you know, footings in that broadcast and live entertainment space. Excellent. Thanks for that. You mentioned curiosity. And I think that is something a lot of AV people tend to have in common is just this curiosity of, of how things work. What can I do with these different puzzle pieces? How can I put them together and, and create something new? That's kind of a recurring theme that I see. So um, what, has, uh, what was your most successful project and, and what made it special for you? Oh, wow. Um, I've worked on so many different projects. Um, Probably the ones that um, you know I, I really enjoyed are the ones that you can't really talk about, unfortunately. Um, you know, working for some some larger banks and and defence and those kind of things. Um, 
any of the ones where they really sort of challenge the norm. You know, it's um, every day you can hang a screen and send a signal to it and, and do those kind of things. Um, but when you start talking about doing AV installations in, in global operations centres and, and defence operations centres and things like that, um, that's when it really starts to get interesting. And, you know, defence are running multiple networks on a computer and separate video outputs and all that kind of stuff and, and the challenges that come with that um, and, and likewise in, in big banking. So probably for me, they're, you know, in, in my AV integration career, they're probably some of the most exciting, um, I'd say. Um, probably the most memorable is, is getting to scrub into operations and, and sit in a, a live operating theatre monitoring an AV system that was crucial to distributing the video um, you know, for open heart surgery and things like that, that was that was pretty cool. But um, you know, each one has its own unique challenges and is memorable for different reasons. So, uh, but that that certainly stands out as being pretty cool. AV support for open heart surgery—that sounds yeah. uh, nail biting, to say the it's, least. <laughs> you're not wrong. It's uh, it's something very different, and um, you know, they, these are the things that. Um, you know, AV is really everywhere. It's it's in so many different spaces that that people don't realise. You know, you you think of your standard boardroom or or you know university lecture theatre and things like that. Um, they're kind of the, the givens with AV, but then there's there's so much more to it in in terms of you know operating theatres and parliaments and and banks and all of these kind of things that are kind of the the bits that everyone overlooks. And until you actually get in there and and get to take a look, it's you, you don't realise the magnitude of it. Yeah, that's that's come up a few times too. Is is really um, seeing how our systems are used. If you, if you're an integrator or you work for a manufacturer or something like that, you tend to just view these as projects and you get the project done and move on. But I think it 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 gives you a whole nother perspective when you get to see these systems in use. And uh, yeah, it's it's a great opportunity. So if you ever get a chance to do that, definitely take advantage of it. So tell us about what you're working on at Deakin University. Um, so at the moment, um, my, my role uh, is in the AV engineering team. So I'm the, the senior engineer and, and technical lead. So essentially, um, my role is a bit of uh, technology discovery, um, plus taking, um, I guess, you know, what the university's direction is coupled with what the academics um, want to be able to do in teaching spaces um, and, and outputting a, a usable, sustainable and workable AV design. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of time is spent uh, investigating and, and evaluating and trialling different technologies um, alongside delivering actual solutions that end up in, in production for our learning environments. So um, what kind of uh, requests are you getting? What, what are the academics asking for? The biggest thing uh, at the moment that that we've got um, is is active learning. So um, I guess it's a change from uh, either your tiered lecture theatre approach um, or your flat floor flat floor students sitting in in rows um, to more of a collaborative uh, and converged learning style. So uh, academics refer to it as as being that active learning style in an AV space. Um, I tend to see it as more of a, a converged and uh, and collaborative space. So. Um, whether that means participants are coming into the, the classroom, the physical classroom via online means, so video conference or, or other means, um, or whether it's, it's students sitting around a collaborative table where they're traditionally being sat in, in rows in a lecture theatre. Um, seems to be the biggest thing at the moment and, and the biggest change in, in our design is, is moving to that active learning aspect. 
Interesting. I, I haven't honestly heard that term before, active learning. So I get the part where you used to, everybody used to be in the classroom. And now you have this video conferencing capability that, of course, expands all the possibilities of, of bringing guest lectures in or uh, remote students even and things like that. Are there any other uh, interesting aspects of active learning or is it basically just video conferencing in, in an education environment? Um, I guess I guess what they're doing is is traditionally you've seen a, a learning space has a has a screen or perhaps a, a dual screen uh, up the front and, and the lecture delivers content to the students. Um, what we're seeing now in in the active learning space is we have um, you know potentially up to uh, ten screens in in a learning space. We've got ten students per table, uh, and that content actually becomes static during the class. So. Uh, rather than stepping through PowerPoints and, and those kind of things, they, they'll put up a task and the students are set to work in, in those tables or those groups uh, on, on those tasks. So it's, it's, you know, in all senses of the word, a lot more of an active learning uh, approach rather than a, a lecturer delivering content at students. Uh, likewise, we still deliver traditional learning in lecture theatres. We still have traditional lecture theatres, but there, there is certainly that push to this more active model uh, and a request for, for spaces that are able to you know, deliver that kind of flexibility where, where they see fit um, and likewise allowing students to interact back the other way. So, um, you know, as I said, traditionally the, the content's been on the screens up the front. Um, we're now seeing lecturers want the students to deliver content back to the class. So they may be at their, their tables with their own screen um, and the ability to either wirelessly connect or, or physically connect via cable um, back into the AV system and present that to all of the screens in, in that particular space and, and the student essentially becomes the content uh, delivery point as well. So we're, we're sort of breaking the bounds of where the content traditionally came from um, and, and moving some of that towards the student. Very interesting. It sounds, uh, yeah, it sounds like collaboration, uh, even collaboration that you would find in an enterprise or a company where you have a meeting and everybody basically is allowed or encouraged to to share whatever it is they're working on. So, in a university environment, what what kind of challenges has that uh, presented? Um, largely around technology. So, uh, you know, obviously, traditionally, we've, we've used uh, matrix switching, um, we've been restricted to uh, HD based T technology, or we've been restricted to uh, physical cable constraints. So, you know, HDMI has a, a theoretical length that you can go to before the signal's unusable or, or you hit the digital cliff. Um, you know, VGA is, is, is sunsetted and, and being phased out now. Um, so we, we have to look at different ways that we can uh, distribute that content in a space um, and different ways that we can control that uh, a lot more flexibly where we don't have to put a control system into each screen or a, you know, a traditional uh, AV-specific uh, control keypad or something like that at each screen um, and, and change that so people can start to use a smartphone or an iPad um, to control their own content without having to go to the extent of, of a custom AV system at every point and programming it plus a room AV system. So they're probably the two main aspects that, that we've had to look at very closely being the, the control and the distribution of content. And uh, how did you, what did your research uh, come up with? How, how are you handling those <laughs> issues? So we did, um, we did a, an extensive uh, amount of research into the technologies available today um, and, and did uh, a range of trials on different technologies um, prior to heading into a, a pilot space essentially in production that's available for, you know, university use. 
Um, so the, the key component for us was very much um, looking at software-defined solutions. So um, obviously that's a little bit harder in the content delivery space. Um, certainly in the control space, we're now seeing a lot more uh, availability of, of software solutions to replace the traditional, uh, I call them, you know, black box solutions. So um, moving towards that that software aspect. So our our evaluations and, and testing and, and all the process that we went through uh, landed as essentially on on a, a audio distribution, video distribution, and a software defined control solution, um, which we now have running in in pilot spaces for users to to come and physically use. So, what was the motivation to actively seek something software defined and instead of going the traditional route? I think we touched on it a little bit, saying that you need to have all of this collaboration and distribution happening with maybe even bring your own device, I guess we could call it. But um, is, is there anything else that, that really made the push towards software defined? I think the AV industry in itself is in an interesting, I guess, life cycle, you could say, um, where we've traditionally been, you know, it's a, it's a closed industry. It's, it's specific hardware and specific equipment to deliver specific solutions. And we're now starting to see a change in the industry uh, where we're adopting more broader and accepted standards. So, uh, you know, something like AES67 in the audio space is is now starting to look like what IT folk have dealt with for the last 25 plus years in terms of a, a standard protocol and a standard delivery method that that is performs reliably and expectedly exactly the same every time you use it. What's so, a, what is AS67 in a nutshell? AS, it's essentially a, um, a, a multicast audio delivery protocol um, that's been developed and agreed upon as, as a standard. So um, I guess you kind of say it's, it's the next generation on from Ucobra and Dante and, and those sort of audio delivery protocols. So okay. um, over, a standard, over a standard network. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it's you know standard one one gig solution through through the network as as multicast, um, and I think this is what we're starting to see as an industry. We're starting to see this move to um, the, these more flexible software based solutions, accepted standards. Um, previously, we've we've bought in uh, you know black box controllers, be it AMX, Crestron, uh, Extron, whomever, and we have to bring them into an enterprise network environment. And we get funny looks from IT guys going, I don't really know what that is. It runs some form of a Linux kernel. Uh, it kind of conforms to certain standards and it goes on the network, but we're not really comfortable with it. And we saw that that whole trend through the AV industry in the last sort of 10 years where integrators have been putting in standalone access points and standalone routers for AV systems and, and not <laughs> integrating them to an enterprise network because... No one really knew what to do with it. It was this black box that did something and it was all sort of magic and its own custom programming code and these physical IOs and security threats and all of this kind of stuff. And then obviously went through the security breach stage with the, the AMX and, and those kind of things that happened a couple of years back. Um, and I think as a whole, the industry is now shifting to this, you know, there's a path of least resistance if we adopt you know, accepted and known standards, um, the possibilities start to really open up to us in things like enterprise networking and, and systems and virtual appliances and all of these kind of things. So 
that was a huge part of, of our thinking of going, okay, well, you know, maybe now is the time to move away from the traditional technologies. Um, we run a five-year refresh cycle in our spaces, or five to six years. So every five to six years, the spaces are revisited and the technologies revamped. So we sort of said, well, if, if we're going to do that, um, you know, traditionally we've, we've gone in and we've gutted the room and we've installed more bespoke AV equipment and we've maybe ran in some core holes and put in some HD-based T, CAT6A. If we, at this stage of the life cycle, cable that room up with structured cabling with, with network points back to our core distribution, in five years' time, we can simply change over the equipment by plugging back into the structured cable. So it very much changes the dynamic of our room refresh cycle. It, it enables a lot more flexibility. In the next five years, it'll, it'll dramatically reduce those costs of that refresh cycle as well because we're not having to run custom cable and buy more bespoke equipment that you know, it serves a, a, a specified life cycle and then we have to get rid of it. We're now moving into a, a space where we've got virtual appliances. If we need to upgrade, we upgrade the operating system. If we need to expand, we upgrade the, the virtual memory on, on the appliance. Um, if we need more network points, we install another network switch. So it, it, it's really sort of starting to change that, that dynamic of how we deliver an AV system while keeping them flexible in, you know, in regards to our users' requests. Absolutely. I can totally understand how the pressure from IT was a big motivator. Uh, guilty as charged, I've put an access point in dedicated to the AV system. And you wince when you're doing it because you just know it's wrong. You know that you're not, you know, that's what networks, that's not what networks are for. It's supposed to be one network and that's how you take advantage of everything. And then the software, you could, uh, you could adjust as time goes on to fit your needs. So I found that really interesting that IT was a main motivating factor and just the infrastructure. Obviously, uh, I had Misha Vendor Stoop on the show uh, a week or two ago, and he talked about 30-year-old CAT3 cable that was still doing its job because it's standard-based. And um, there's no 30-year-old AV cable that could work with today's technology. It's just impossible. So yeah, I'm, I'm on the same page. I really do think we need to start using these technologies, the network as it was intended to be used. But there's exactly. still some re resistance. Did you experience any resistance in your organization uh, when this new solution was proposed? Um, I think we're in, a, in, we're in a really interesting position. So um, essentially what, what's happened at the university is our AV, engineer, AV engineering team and our network engineering team, um, while we're not one team, we work very closely. So our, our network engineering uh, sit basically the, the next row on from us. Um, and from the very first moment that we started talking about moving in this direction and starting to leverage the network for video distribution, audio distribution, um, those guys were 100% on board. Um, we've had a, a, a one dedicated network resource working with us throughout the, the evaluation and the pilot stage, um, but certainly that, that entire team has been um, behind us 100% in, in delivering this, this solution. Um, likewise, we, we now start to bring in um, people like our, our systems team into our AV environment. So traditionally, you know, it's been a very segregated AV would rarely talk to, to the systems. Maybe we got a, a virtual appliance run up to do RMS or, or a fusion solution uh, and that was it. And that was largely left untouched and, and running. But now we're starting to break down the wall into, okay, 
you know, we're an e-solutions group that deliver technology solutions to the university. Um, we now need to, to start working as a, as a collective e-solutions group. So um, certainly the network guys are, you know, 100% on board uh, and we're, we've started to work very closely with our systems guys to make sure that we can deliver um, the, the virtual appliances and it doesn't just stop there. We're now talking about things like our, our firewalling um, and, and all those kind of virtual management things uh, largely related around security. Um, that occur. So for me, it's been a big crash course into uh, you know, enterprise security, network security, system security, firewalling. Um, these are all the things that start to become discussions, not what's the RS-232 protocol for projector XYZ. Um, it's I now need to bring this device through. Uh, and, and that's opened up an interesting discussion for us and, and very much changed the direction of where we're heading in terms of devices that we bring into our AV space uh, and starting to look at devices that largely talk on, you know, port 80 or 443 and preferably port 443 for security. Um, but no more of this bespoke, you know, manufacturer X picked port, you know, 1745 because that's what they use. Serial um, over TCP. Absolutely, exactly. And, and we want to use dedicated accepted standards for IP communication and, and where we can use 80 and the software control solution that, that we're using really starts to give way to that because the, the API is, is so rich in, in that software. Uh, it opens up web sockets. It opens up, uh, you know, all, all of those kind of what's accepted in, in the outside world from the AV industry as, as, a, as a norm in terms of APIs and, and JSON and XML and these kind of things. We've now brought them into our AV space and we picked our video distribution solution being the Atlona OmniStream um, largely because it does WebSockets and it can be configured with, with XML and we can, we can send that straight to it from our control platform uh, in our servers and, and configure a box in, in two seconds and have it online with an IP address um, yeah. where traditionally you've had to go and do all this weird you know, ports and RS-232 or whatever it may be uh, and it's just been so complicated and, and you've got a, all these complex notes. It's like, you know what, that device is on port 80. Um, I can talk to it straight over WebSockets, no dramas. Right. So you mentioned the solution that you chose and uh, I, we could get more into that in, in a few seconds. I want to take a step back though, uh, because uh, you talked a lot about working more closely with IT. And I re I'm really interested in hearing more of what that looks like. Because like you said, AV was its own thing. There was maybe a little, uh, you'd talk about a few little things with IT, but not a lot. And then AV was just left to run on its own. So what does that collaboration look like? And what kind of skills does AV need to learn, right? Because you can't just start talking to somebody if you're exactly. talking a different language. You have to have some yeah. knowledge, but at the same time, we can't know everything. And I think exactly. it would be a fool's errand to try to say we're going to be in charge of IT security or anything like that. That's just impossible. So no. where, where should we be getting started with what to learn and, and what does that, that situation look like for you? That's a fantastic question. Uh, initially, I can just say the, the collaboration has been, has been awesome from a skill set perspective um, of, of upskilling. Um, I came into it with with a little bit of multicast knowledge, so I'd done some some hotel multicast uh, TV deployments and things like that. So I had a, a little bit of understanding of, of how it worked 
Um, I thought I had more understanding of what I did until I started talking to these guys. Um, and it's not until you start to get into conversations with these guys and they are powerhouses of information regarding networks. Um, so I guess our initial discussions, uh, you know, I'd, I'd take down some notes and then quickly head back to Google and, and Google all these terms and PIM sparse mode and PTP and SDP and all of this kind of stuff and they're talking all these acronyms and then you, you start to pick up on that uh, and understand what they're talking about. Um, but really, the, the, the shift is traditionally we would uh, have meetings to deploy an AV solution and we might have our AV support people involved. Uh, we'd obviously have the AV engineers involved. Uh, we might have a project manager. Um, these meetings now, we just invite network resources. So um, basically, anytime we're going to deploy uh, a solution like this, that there's a network guy there with us. Um, and we learn from them as we go. So we start to learn more about access control lists and multicast routing uh, and how the network's actually configured. And that's probably one of the biggest things is, is inherently understanding how the network works. And I think probably the biggest misnomer I can say coming from an AV industry into this space is that AV guys traditionally like to think they know how networks work. Um, and it's not until you start to get into it with these these network specialists that you're just like there is so much more to these networks than than what meets the eye um so i, I can't give enough praise to, to the work that those guys have, have done with us on on this project specifically um because really they're they're the linchpin we can we can move hdmi signals around and we can move audio signals around uh, but to be able to move them on the network is a, is a whole nother unique challenge so Personally, for me, the, the information that I've, I've learned from that and, and the journey of that has been phenomenal. You know, I've been able to now sit in those meetings and confidently have those discussions with those guys about, you know, this is why we think the multicast is not routing this way because the problem is likely going to be here and, and actually working off that level, but having that skill set to call on to actually resolve the problem when we need. So I would say moving forward for, for AV guys um, to to try and align yourself with with some strong networking guys. Don't, don't try and take it on yourself and, and don't try and think that you might understand it and get yourself into a space that you can't get out of. Certainly start doing some upskilling. So some of the Cisco training courses online are fantastic. There's, there's things like the CompTIA network course if you don't want to jump into a full CCNA or something like that. Um, but certainly understanding the basic principles of, of multicast in layer two and layer three um, and understanding, um, you know, the, the TCP IP models and, and how all of those kind of things come together and understanding some of the basic protocols that can be used now in these AV spaces, be it, uh, you know, precision time and, and the SDP and, and things like that um, are just going to be absolutely crucial. Um, and it, it's really not hard when when you've got someone to to sit down and explain it with you and a bit of googling on your own time and and you know you'll 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 understand it in no time. Excellent, thanks for that. So it sounds like um, you're always going to have to have a specialist in the meeting on board, and that you need to have an open mind and be willing to learn uh, as much as you can just to keep the conversation going. Do you find that uh, that's reciprocal, that the IT department is also somewhat interested in learning what it is you're trying to do so that they could help you more? Absolutely. Um, and we're now getting into stages where we're talking about, uh, or the, the, the network guys more specifically are talking about their infrastructure upgrades. So they're starting to look 
sort of five, six years into the future and go, right, this is what we think our plan's going to be. Um, and, and we're now as AV getting invited to those meetings to go, how does this impact your AV solution? What, what do you think, if any, are there probable issues going to arise from if we change our infrastructure from this to this or from this switch model to this switch model? Um, this is the implications that we can see. How do you guys feel about that? So it is most certainly becoming reciprocal. Uh, we're sitting in a lot more discussions that traditionally AV was just just closed to. We'd sort of come in and, you know, ask for a port and then beg for mercy when something went wrong. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. it's, you know, it's really now a two-way street that we're, we're you know, we're working essentially as a as a one ITAV team um, and and starting to deliver solutions and and the one thing particularly for us in higher education is is remembering that we're we're improving our services for our students at the end of the day so you know it's it's in the university's best interest that we all work together but fortunately the the environment that we have is it's you know it's working exceptionally well and and we've got a, a great resource that's now going both ways for us excellent i i really think that uh the culture of software is one of openness because once you uh get any kind of knowledge about how complicated things really are about it's amazing that anything works i think there's uh just less finger pointing and more um working collaboratively to get to exactly. a defined solution i think that's just mm. like a, an inherent part of software in general absolutely so, um, so what solution for control did you, uh, you mentioned at Lona for distribution, what kind of control solution did you decide upon in the end? So we're using a, an Australian based, uh, solution called ACA. Um, so ACA is, um, essentially a, a web application for all intents and purposes that sits on a, a server. Um, it's, it's deployed with Docker. Um, again, something that's now become synonymous with deploying software and virtual environments and things like that. Um, it, it uses standards-based languages, so it's using uh, you know things like Ruby. Uh, the front-end uh, user interfaces are all HTML5 and, and JavaScript libraries. Um, so, and that's that's one interesting aspect that that took a turn for us um, quite by chance. I, I happened to be talking to um, the person that leads our visual communication area at the university, and and was talking about the project and what we we're going to embark on and, and what it means for AV. Um, and they actually became extremely interested, and it, it, it uh, transpired that the the team who develop our public-facing website now make our AV user interface in HTML5. So we've actually brought all that inside. There uh, again, they're a you know they're a specialist team that deals with our corporate branding and our colours and logo and all of that kind of stuff. They're specialists in their field with delivering HTML uh, websites and, and those kind of things. So it makes logical sense that they deliver our user interfaces rather than an AV guy trying to make a user interface for a user that we, you know, traditionally AV guys have made user interfaces for AV guys, um, forgetting the user. And, and, and this team put in a huge amount of effort in terms of user experience and actually putting the, the user interface through a full test cycle with real users and, and wireframing and building upon that. So... For us, that's a huge benefit. The other thing that that delivers is that we can have multiple user interfaces now. So we can have a user interface specifically designed for our technical support team that gives them a large amount of control over the sort of granular routing control of the system where the user interface is literally just pick a source and it sends it to a, a display. So that's been a huge benefit is having those native languages be it HTML5 and JavaScript for the front end 
uh, and obviously Ruby and, and things like that for the back end. Again, it's, it's something that's easy to pick up. It's easy to learn. There's so much resource online. Um, and the ACA solution being web-based is so flexible at interacting with, with different things. Essentially, provided there's an API, we can now talk to it you know, it, from the server. There's, there's really no restrictions on that. We live in an API world, and uh, I love hearing about solutions like that because there's so much more we could be taking advantage of. And sometimes the pushback that I hear is, well, who's going to program it? There's not enough um, talent out there. And it's exactly the opposite. It's talent is everywhere. There's software developers all over the world. And like you discovered, you had user interface designers in your own organizations who know your users better than anybody else. And Mm, that's a challenge for AV programmers. We really don't get to know the users all that well. And um, I think it just makes sense to, uh, to take advantage of those resources like that. And also, like you said, it kind of decouples the user interface from the system. So if an AV guy wants to make a, a touch panel or a user interface for himself that's very techy, then go ahead, right? The system yep. doesn't care. It's just accepting requests from, from something. From a web server, essentially, and, the, and that's the thing. And, and you're absolutely right. And we did a an interesting test, I guess, when we were going through the evaluation period and, and said to one of our... Uh, AV engineers who's a very seasoned uh, AMX programmer write us a module for this very complicated device in Ruby and we'll, we'll test that. We'll, we'll compare the development time, we'll compare the output of the module and the efficiency of the module and the security of the module, most importantly. Um, what he said used to take him about a week, potentially longer in, in sort of a traditional AV AMX space. It took him two days to write the module in Ruby um, he admitted that he had not really written Ruby before this, so there was a bit of Googling in, in terms of the constructs of the language, was able to deliver a fully secure module that binded over 443 with, with passwords and, and uh, maintained an encrypted connection to the device within two days and, and full control back to the user interface. So that was a really big turning point for us to say, you know what, this is, this is actually a real big game changer. If we can start to do things like this, um, and, and going beyond that, we literally uh, we, we save those modules to a version control, so be it GitHub or a Bitbucket, anything like that, or SVN. We link that into the ACA engine on the server, uh, and our modules are there. So essentially, once he's finished developing that module, commits the, the final to the master branch adhering to software standards in terms of version control, uh, that module appears in our, our ACA engine and we can deploy that straight away. So if we have to make a change on the fly, we can work on our development branch of that module in our, in our development environment, test it against the device, commit that back to our version control, uh, and, and straight away we've got that active device. We don't have to bring the system down. We don't have to work around schedules and uh, timetables and all of those kind of things. Um, we literally just just punch that back into version control and 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 keep going and and the same applies for the user interface. So if we if we want to make a change to a user interface, we can do that on the fly and we can make a color change or a, a font change. Uh, we can dynamically add more sources and we can commit that back to the version control. Uh, ACA engine picks that up. So no longer is updating a user interface hitting each individual system. And you can imagine in an education environment, we've got. Uh, around 400 connected spaces uh, in AV terms, uh, we would have to touch each one of those spaces individually to do a user interface change. Um, where now we do one commit back to our master branch uh, and all of a sudden all of our user interfaces change. 
So yeah. it's a huge dynamic shift in the way that we work um, and it just makes managing that kind of environment so much different. Um, one point that was of, of real high interest uh, to us in the ACA engine uh, was what they've they've done as a, a three-tiered approach to control. So you, you mount your device module in, uh, you, your control module. Uh, we can affect settings at that module level in the ACA engine. We can zone our rooms and affect settings there, or we can affect settings at the room level. So uh, as an example, if we deployed a, a model of uh, LCD panel and we wanted to set a specific parameter on them, uh, every time we added a new one to our environment, we could add that setting to our device level setting uh, and that would get affected to that device every time one comes online. Uh, likewise, we could make a, a digital signage group, uh, a digital signage zone in, in ACA and we could say every time that uh, we add digital signs, we want them to turn on at 7am and turn off at 9pm and every time they turn on, we want them to be on HDMI input. So. It doesn't matter what space that goes into, wherever that goes on, on the university or whatever campus, uh, provided that's in the digital signage zone, those settings will apply. So that's a, a monumental shift for, for AV where we would normally have to put a control system on every single digital signage display and give it parameters individually uh, and, and make those changes. We now do it once and any time we deploy a new digital signage, that, that setting applies, which is just... a, a phenomenal shift when when you think about it in in av industry terms absolutely it is a a real eye-opener when you when you see it work for yourself when you mentioned a bunch of things but it basically comes down to development and deployment and when you actually witness it yourself and you see how much it works when you're developing how many libraries are available i'm sure that's why you were able to develop so fast that module because there were libraries that just do everything for you there's so many open source libraries that you could just pull down and start using. Whereas if you wanted to do something special, you'd have to write it all on your own. And then version control and deployment. I mean, software development, modern software development is just light years ahead of what we do with the uh, compile, upload, reboot <laughs> sequence. It's, it's pretty archaic. So You're exactly right. So if, uh, do you have any advice for an organization that's considering alternatives like this and is uh, just really not sure where to start? Um, it, it's a really difficult question because I think it, it definitely applies to, to the environment. I think the biggest thing that I've learned through this journey um, is start with your user requirements first. Um, we've been very naive in, in AV that we've designed uh, systems and solutions um, around whether it be our preferred hardware vendor um, or, or our preferred preference that this is the way we do it and then we've deployed those solutions and we make them work but they're, they're not great you know to particularly to a user the the biggest thing that i've i've learned through this this process is is very much to start at the user and figure out what does the user expect the system to do and how does the user want to do it um, you know we've got to start thinking in a mindset now that that pretty much every user's got an iPhone or an Android or a tablet of some description um, and, and think how the workflows work on, on those devices and, and that's how users are going to interact with the systems. We've traditionally worked at a high level because we understand the technology. We know that we can plug an input source in over here and then we do all of these bits in the middle and it comes out over there but the, the user doesn't see that. They, they plug in their HDMI cable and they expect the video to be on the screen. 
that's really all they care about at the end of the day. And if they have to interact with a user interface, they, they want as little steps as possible and as logical steps as possible as well. And, and one of the biggest things that we got back was the user experience feedback through this process of taking our traditional AV design user interface, putting that through testing and then outputting what we've got today on our software-defined solution. Um, they're, they're worlds apart, but the user relates so much more to the new one because it's tailored around them. So we go, okay, well, this is what the user wants to do. They want to take in you know, five sources or one source. It doesn't really matter what they want to take in, but we need to get that out. So we go, this is what they want to do. This is how they want to do it. And then we make the middle bit work. Um, and I think inherently the flaw in AV is that we've been really focused on the middle bit and we've forgotten about the two end bits. Yeah, the user and the result. Yep, absolutely. And and they're, you know, they're the, that's why we do it. We're, we're not, you know, as much as I like automating things and, and playing around with technology and stuff, we, we do it because users want to display video or distribute audio or, or whatever it may be. Um, and we really need to take a step back to that thinking. And fortunately, flexible solutions like, you know, ACA or, or some of the other software-defined AV solutions out there are now offering us a lot more flexibility in, in that space. Um, but certainly we, we really need to focus on those user requirements and understand exactly what it is the user wants to do and how the user wants to do it before we start defining or designing the AV system. Excellent. User plus the result equals the experience. I think that's a, a great place to wrap things up today. Jeremy, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Um, hit me up on LinkedIn, I would say. Um, that's probably the easiest way. Jeremy West, uh, I think it's got a CTS on the end of it as well there. Um, but uh, jump on there and uh, shoot me a message. That'd be more than welcome. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, Patrick here again. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, if you liked what you've heard, if you want to hear more discussions like this, please go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to the show, send me a comment, get in touch with me somehow and let me know that you're out there listening and that'll motivate me to keep doing these shows and get more great guests on. So if you're driving or whatever, ask Siri to set something in your calendar to give you a reminder to go to iTunes and leave a review. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. For transcripts and show notes, go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com.